You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. What's up, Mosaic? How we doing? You doing good? Oh, I'm feeling the energy, feeling the energy. Shout out to Mosaic. In a minute, that lady was fine on that video. And if you're visiting, that is my wife. I'm not a creeper. Who let this predator on this stage? Awesome. Y'all know I can't, I can't act right. I'm sorry. As Alon as, as mentioned earlier, today is my beautiful wife's birthday. Shout out. What's up? And she even came early for our non-existent 11.30 service. It was amazing. Um, y'all will get that tomorrow. Uh, but she came on time. Thank you so much for making space for me this week, babe, to, to, to give God's word uh, on the day. I really appreciate that, and I'm praying that God would, would meet us here today. So shout out to you. Celebrating after third service. Let's go. <laughs> Well, everyone, I'm excited to be with all of you, whether you're joining us in the room or online. Uh, My name is Barnabas, one of the pastors here, and I have the honor of sharing God's word with you today as we continue through our series, Reversal, where we are looking at the gospel of Luke. We've been moving through uh, this book in in, in hopes of of taking a look at Jesus' earthly ministry and his life and how in many ways it, it reversed the values that exist in our culture and even in our own lives. Two weeks ago, we looked at Luke 14, and we talked about how generosity has everything to do with love. Last week, we we used Luke 22 to talk about what it looks like to defeat darkness. And this week, we get to talk about the the crucifixion of Jesus. Yay, Pastor Morgan saved the last one, the best one for for me. Uh, I'm only partially joking. In all seriousness, I consider it a privilege to, to dive into God's word with all of you today. And my hope is that as we explore Jesus' journey to the cross, that God will reveal something very meaningful to all of us, and that maybe even something new will begin to, 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 to bubble up to the top that can somehow impact all of our lives. So today's scripture is going to be in Luke chapter 23, and I'll read it for you. Starting in verse 32, it says, Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, They crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written a notice above him, which read this, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely 
this was a righteous man. And that's the reading of God's word. And the church said, amen. As we take a deeper look into this passage, I believe it's necessary to enter into the world of those witnessing the crucifixion, particularly those who are followers of Jesus. It was around AD 33. AD stands for Anno Domini. It's Latin for in the year of the Lord. Jesus has just completed the, the three years of his earthly ministry here on earth. He healed the sick, gave sight to the blind, and even caused the dead to live again. He regularly preached in the synagogues and in front of the masses with a power and authority that people had never seen. He often spoke of his deity, claiming to be the son of God, while simultaneously displaying his humanity through his self-imposed limitations and his practical needs. He was the one the prophecies spoke of, the coming Messiah. Many Jews expected Jesus to be this military figure to overthrow Rome. Some envisioned a prophet, much like Moses, while others were looking for this, this ruler with wealth and power, much like King David. Whatever image they had in their minds of who Jesus was supposed to be was tragically replaced with a different image of his lifeless body hanging on a T-shaped tree. It wasn't just their teacher or rabbi who died, so that their hopes and dreams of a better world. This is the setting we find ourselves in at the end of Luke 23. The title of today's message is The Reversal of the Cross. But the spirit, I hope, will feel more like an extended devotional. During our time together, I hope that we can take what the followers of Jesus were experiencing at the crucifixion and use it to form a question that I think is important for us to consider today. Why did Jesus have to die? I know it may seem elementary, but I believe that scripture reveals some depth that's worth us exploring today. I'll begin by simply answering this question and spend the rest of our time unpacking what that means for all of us. There are three main reasons why Jesus had to die, and those are to demonstrate sacrificial love, deal with sin, and draw us near. In order to further examine these reasons, we'll look at each one of them using the experiences and perspectives of those who were there at the, at the crucifixion. I like to be candid and upfront with you. Some of the things that we're going to talk about as it relates to Jesus' death may come across as unpleasant and maybe even somewhat challenging. But my hope is that by the end, it will allow us, help us to see the power of the cross more clearly. Amen? Lord, I pray for your wisdom. Pray that you would use me. It would be your voice. You would speak through me. Let me, allow me to be your vessel for good use. In Jesus' name, amen. It's no secret that Jesus' death serves as literally the clearest demonstration of sacrificial love that the world has ever seen. I believe understanding why is going to be important by, and, and probably most appropriate if we look through the lenses as best we can through Jesus himself. And as we do this, let's revisit a few verses from our passage. Starting with verse 35, it says, the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. The first known practice of crucifixion was done by the Persians. 
They basically became so efficient in, in, in impelling a person that they would do it in such a way that they would survive for days. Now, now think about that. The objective was for them to experience the greatest amount of pain for the longest period of time. The Greeks brought crucifixion back to the Mediterranean world during the reign of Alexander the Great. The Romans learned crucifixion from the Carthaginians, and they quickly became experts at this type of torture. It was reserved for murderers, traitors, and criminals. There were a few different type of crosses. After a while, the, the rulers felt like the, crucified, the, the crucifixion, those who were being crucified, it was taking too long for them to die. Actually, they were dying too fast. They wanted, they wanted them to kind of suffer longer. So they wanted to figure out a way to make this happen. As a result, they developed a T-shaped structure, which was made in two pieces. As you can see on the image on the screen, there was this vertical piece called the, the stipes. There was also this cross beam. It was this horizontal piece that was then attached to this vertical piece. In a lot of images you see today, this horizontal piece was maybe a fourth or a third of the way down on this vertical piece. And this, this horizontal piece was called a patabellum. It was generally weighed about 100 to 125 pounds. And the victim or the, or the, or the person being crucified was, was forced to carry it from the prison to the place of execution. There were times when crucifying notorious criminals, there was this sign that was placed on the top of the cross. In Jesus' case, this, this sign served a dual purpose. On one hand, it communicated Jesus' claim to be the Son of God, which the religious leaders viewed as blasphemy and a crime that's worthy of death. It also served as a blatant display of mockery. It was Rome's way of saying, oh, this is your king? We'll show you what we do to kings that aren't Caesar. What do you think about your king now? There was a couple of different ways of securing the victim to the cross. And it all depended on how long authorities wanted the victim to, to live or suffer. Sometimes the victim was simply tied to the cross. And they would eventually die of starvation. If they were regularly offered water to drink, they could last up to a few weeks. But in cases where authorities preferred a quicker death, they would generally drive these large nails in their hands and feet. They wouldn't put the nails in the palm of the hands because the weight of the, the body would cause the nail to rip through the hands and they would just fall off. Instead, they placed it in the wrist. There was this set of bones in between the wrist and the hand that actually held the hands in place. Not to mention that it pierced this median nerve that caused excruciating, fiery pain in both arms. Before the nail was driven in both the victim's feet, their knees were bent, one foot was placed flat on that vertical piece of the cross. The other foot was placed on top, on top and, a, and a long nail was driven through both feet. When the cross was lifted and set in place, the weight of the body caused the, the victim to slump, putting all the weight on those, those wrists. And what's interesting is that even though the hands and feet were pierced, most victims didn't die of blood loss. It was actually the compression on their lungs that caused them to not be able to breathe. In order to breathe, the person would have to put all their weight on their feet, also resulting in unimaginable pain. Not to mention that they would scrape their backs from the front of the cross, reopening the wounds from being brutally beaten with a rope laced with broken bone and metal spikes. It wasn't uncommon for blood to run down the front of the cross and look kind of like stripes. I can't help but be reminded of Isaiah 53, 5, where it says, by his stripes, we are healed. 
Each attempt to take a breath was agonizing and exhausting. And it led to a quicker death. Eventually, those people being crucified would become so tired, they could no longer lift themselves up. And they would basically suffocate. Some victims could last for a few days, and under these conditions, if, if the authorities ordered it and they wanted a quicker death, they would order that their, their, their legs be broken so that they wouldn't be able to lift up and breathe. And when their legs were broken, they died in a matter of minutes. This is what Jesus experienced at Calvary. In addition to the physical pain of being severely beaten and nailed to a cross, Jesus is also feeling this loneliness of being abandoned by these men who were not just his disciples, but his closest friends. He's being mocked by the very people he willingly laid his life down for. And the worst part of it, he's experiencing the anguish of being separated from his heavenly father. Yet, he willingly submitted to all of this for you, for me, for all of us to demonstrate his love. But Jesus didn't stop there. He didn't just die to, to demonstrate his love for us. It was also to deal with our sin. We've looked at the crucifixion briefly through the eyes of Jesus, and I think it would be helpful for us to look at it through a different lens. The passage shows us that there, there were two other men hanging beside Jesus, both criminals also being crucified. And as I mentioned earlier, the crucifixion wasn't intended to be this quick and painless death. It was the exact opposite. It was intended to prolong the torment. In this particular case, it was not just a time of suffering. It was actually a time for conversation. So as these three men hung next to each other, it led to what is perhaps the most extraordinary exchange throughout entire Scripture. These men shared one thing in common, but also it was evident that one of them, Jesus, was very different. Much like the rulers and soldiers, the first criminal engages Jesus with this harsh sarcasm. We find what he says in verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. It's interesting how this convicted man's word revealed a costly misunderstanding. In his mind, salvation was simply the, the deliverance from the physical agony of being crucified. But what he didn't realize is that there was this powerful reversal happening right in front of him. It was actually by staying on the cross and not saving himself that Jesus was able to save the entire world from God's judgment. Now, this judgment was not only well-deserved, but would have led to a fate far worse than pain or physical death. So saving himself was the very thing that Jesus couldn't do. Because doing so would mean that the world would experience a righteous wrath, resulting in eternity away from God. But Jesus, along with God the Father, had a much better plan. One that I think is best articulated in a description found in a book called Across the Spectrum. In this book, authors Gregory A. Boyd and Paul R. Eddy explore the different viewpoints of major issues in evangelical theology. Here's how they describe one particular view of atonement. It says, God's utterly uncompromising stance towards sin may strike us as extreme and unwarranted, perhaps even prudish. But this is simply further evidence of how jaded our fallen reason has become and how little we understand either holiness or sin. To appreciate God's dilemma 
And thus the reason Jesus had to die, we must in faith simply accept the truth as it is revealed in God's word. Sin is antithetical to God's holy nature. It is impossible for God to simply excuse it. And yet God loves sinners and wants us to enjoy perfect fellowship with him throughout eternity. How can this be achieved? God's answer is as profound and mysterious as it is graciously beautiful. God himself decided to suffer the wages of sin that his own holiness demands. God the Son freely agreed with the Father to align himself with fallen humanity and to suffer God's wrath against sin by dying on the cross. This view of the atonement is called penal substitution view. For Christ accepted the punishment for sin in our place. Much like many people in the world today, this was a concept that the first criminal didn't quite grasp. As a result, he saw Jesus hanging next to him as a failure. So it was easy for him to join everyone else in his ridicule and scorn. What's interesting is how the second criminal responds to the first. He says, don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly. For we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. So the second criminal body checks him, right? Bro, you tripping. Like we in the same situation, but we ain't the same. He different, right? And so we, we, we see that all these men are condemned by Rome. And, and they're sentenced to the same death. But there is a crucial difference. These criminals hanging next to Jesus, they deserve some form of punishment. But Jesus didn't. It's important to note that the crucifixion was birthed out of a sick and twisted view of justice. To receive joy out of the torment of others is something that God never intended. So what we see in this passage isn't some endorsement of corporal punishment, but instead God using a perverted earthly system to redeem the world and illustrate a spiritual truth that apart from Christ, we all deserve death. To minimize the guilt of those criminals hanging beside Jesus opens the door to us minimizing the sin in our own lives. It is a dangerous mistake that robs not only Jesus of his sacrifice, but the cross of its power. Even though Jesus is suffering the same Roman judgment and experiencing the same physical pain, the perfect life he lived prior to being nailed between two guilty criminals is what turned a gruesome punishment into a divine exchange. Recognizing this course-altering truth, the second criminal, likely using his last ounce of strength and maybe even his last words, calls out to the innocent man hanging next to him, saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Both criminals experienced judgment based on Roman law. But what Jesus experienced was twofold. He was not only experiencing Roman punishment, he was experiencing God's punishment. Nailed to a cross, Jesus was condemned by God himself. And just as it says in Isaiah 53, 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The ironic beauty is that even though his sin was infinitely less, his punishment was infinitely greater. The second criminal was previously far from God. But in this moment, Eternity somehow, miraculously, has come within his reach. A man who scripture refers to as a thief in his final moments places his trust in Jesus 
And how does Jesus respond? Does he say, too late, too little. You should have hollered at me when I was preaching in Galilee. You out here stealing people's stuff. To the lake of fire you go. No, he didn't respond that way. Well, actually, the way he responded is quite remarkable. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Some of you might be thinking, well, that ain't fair. This, this, he was a convict, right? And he, he just cries out to Jesus at the last minute, and all of a sudden he gets to spend eternity with God? Yeah. Yeah. But let's not forget that the only reason he's able to talk to Jesus in the first place is because he's being crucified and moments away from death. He wasn't rescued from the consequences of his actions. But because of the sinless man hanging next to him, he was delivered from the, God's judgment in the life to come. It was a picture of God's grace. It has nothing to do with human merit. If there's anything that we can learn from this moment, from this exchange, is that it's never too late to cry out to Jesus. Christ died for us. Not only to demonstrate his sacrificial love and to deal with our sin, but to draw us near. We've looked at Calvary through the experience of, of Jesus and even two unnamed criminals. I'd like to spend some time unpacking the vantage point of the crucifixions through the, through the eyes of a Roman centurion. In order to do this, let's take a look at a few verses of the passage, and I'll provide some context that I think might help us to be more immersed in what's taking place in the final moments of Jesus' life here on earth. Starting in verse 44, it was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn into. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. The word centurion comes from the Latin word centum, which means a hundred. Uh, a centurion was a Roman soldier in command of a hundred men. It was actually in the Roman army, the, 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 the highest rank an ordinary officer could achieve. It would probably be similar to what we would find today as a company commander. A centurion's responsibilities fell into two main categories, combat and administrating discipline. So while on the battlefield, a centurion's responsibility was to, to develop and implement military strategy and, and lead his, his men into combat. But, but when he was off the battleground, he was managing conflict amongst his men, providing security and protection when called upon, and overseeing executions. This explains why this particular soldier is on the side of the crucifixion and is a primary witness to what takes place. He is well aware of the serious accusations against Jesus because of his claim to be the son of God and is the main reason that he's being condemned by the Jewish religious leaders. His commander-in-chief, Pontius Pilate, didn't even agree with the accusations but still upheld the conviction. In a lot of ways, this battle-hardened veteran has seen it all, accustomed to blood and death. This day was like many, or any other day, except it wasn't. Something was different. In the middle of the day, the sun, when it would typically shine the brightest, the, the sky was suddenly covered in darkness. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking. We're in Texas. That happens all the time. Let me assure you, this was different. It was like 
God flicked a switch and the sun went off for three hours. And, and then this curtain that was hanging in the tabernacle ripped from top to bottom. According to corresponding scriptures, those who watched Jesus take his last breath felt the earth shake beneath them. They watched rocks split wide open. This passage says that after seeing all of this, the centurion praised God. In Greek, it's the same word used a few chapters earlier to describe the response of the blind beggar Jesus heals outside of Jericho. It means to praise, extol, magnify, celebrate. The centurion goes on to say, surely this was a righteous man. Other accounts in the two of the synoptic gospels record him saying, surely this was the son of God. The darkness, the earthquake, the veil being ripped in half, all convinced this Roman soldier that this was no ordinary execution. Can you imagine the terror he felt when he realized that they had just murdered the son of God? What divine vengeance might await him and those around him for this heinous crime? Not just against an innocent man, but the creator of the universe? His confession shows us something of eternal significance. That Jesus, as the promised Messiah, is seen most clearly not when performing signs and wonders or teaching in the crowds amongst his disciples, but when hanging on a cross in the midst of his skeptics. So much so that it turned mouths filled with mockery into lips filled with praise. Before taking his last breath, Jesus says something that I don't want us to unintentionally brush past. Scripture specifically articulates that he says with a loud voice. So it seems like much more of a proclamation than just a statement. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In his book, Christ-Centered Exposition, Exalting Jesus in Luke, Pastor Tabiti Anyabwile captures something crucial that I think would be beneficial for us to consider. This is what he says. He says, the sun's light fell for three whole hours in the middle of the day. Christ has been crucified. The hour of death has come. All of heaven cloaks its face. When the sun was supposed to be its strongest, darkness covers the entire land. God gives a sign that something miraculous has happened. God tears the curtain in the temple in two. The curtain once divided the most holy place where God was thought to dwell and only a high priest could enter from the outer court where others could worship. Now in the crucifixion, in the tearing of his flesh, Christ has torn the curtain between God and man. Now all who worship God may go into his presence as priest. Then Christ cries in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. What a declaration of faith and an act of trust. The Son of God models for us what should be our confession to come what may into the hands of our loving Father. We commit ourselves to God. So it was with Christ. In the hour of his death, our Lord focuses his attention on his Father. The Father who sent him into the world, prepared a body for him, ordained that he should suffer and die. The same God is worthy of our commitment, no matter our circumstance or what befalls us. Let us, by God's grace, learn to declare, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. For those hands will never lose us. No one will ever slip through those omnipotent fingers. No one will ever pluck us from those hands. I know that even in my own life, there's been moments where it's been hard to see Jesus. 
There's been times where I've felt overlooked, experienced the pain and loss of loved ones, and even the disappointment of unfulfilled dreams. Then I considered the centurion. He watched Jesus experience this excruciating, overwhelming pain, gut-wrenching abandonment, yet still placed his trust in his heavenly Father. What would happen if we lived in such a way that remembers what Jesus went through on the cross? What would happen if, if, if people around us witnessed us going through heart aching pain and suffering, but still placing our trust in God? You know what I think? I'm confident that it would draw us and others closer to God. So what do we do with all of that? I'll leave you with a few things that I think would be helpful in ways that we can respond in the days to come from what we learned from Luke 23. Four quick things. Remember the cross. Receive its promise. Relish in its goodness and rely on its power. I don't know what that looks like for all of you. I'm not saying you got to go watch the Passion of Christ every week. But I am saying that we are all called to keep the cross before us. I encourage you to take some time this week to seek God and pray about what does it mean to live that out? What does it mean to walk that out? I want to pray for us. As I prepare to do that, I, I want to ask you to do something. If you wouldn't just mind bowing your head, close your eyes for just a moment. I think there's a few people in this room that might be in kind of different seasons of their life. I think some of you here have never, ever given your life to this Jesus. Maybe what you've heard has been a milk-down, watered-down version of who Jesus truly was. Passive, maybe. Weak. We serve a brave Jesus, a courageous Jesus who was willing to do it all, to lay down everything for us. I think some of you in this room, even though maybe you've not had that moment, are starting to see. Maybe God's tugging on your heart. Maybe you're, you're like the man hanging on the cross. Maybe you're like that Roman centurion where you're seeing Jesus for the first time as clear as day. I want to invite you just to slide your hand in the air if you feel like this is a, that God is tugging at your heart to surrender your life to him. If he's calling you to give it all and lay it all at the cross, I see you. Some of you in this room, You've heard the story so much. It's become kind of like in one ear and out the other. I've been there. You become numb to the story and the weight of it seems a little bit lighter. And maybe today you were reminded of the pain that our Lord and Savior went through. I pray that today that God would give you this righteous weight to carry with you. Not one that's burdensome and, and weighs you down, but one that powers you and pushes you forward to be bold in your faith, to be secure in who you are as sons and daughters, I speak that over you. And some of you in this room might be believing for somebody else, a family member, a friend, a neighbor. You desperately want them to encounter this Jesus. I want to join my faith with yours in believing that God is moving through your life, through other things that maybe we don't always see, that he's drawing them close to the cross. And then much like that centurion, they'll be able to say, this is the son of God. 
So Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for having, how even with three different perspectives that we, we found in today's passage, they all point to the same truth and how it's nothing short of magnificent. Only you could turn what was once a symbol of death into a symbol of new life. Thank you for displaying your, your love, for dealing with our sin, for drawing us near. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.